weird. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I said words I regret. <laughs> <laughs> Talking Underwater. One Water. One Podcast. I'm Amy McIntosh, Managing Editor of Water Quality Products. I'm Lauren Baltus, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Managing Editor of Water Waste Digest. So, thanks again for tuning in. We have um, we have a couple news items that we wanted to start kick off with. Um, the first of which is um, an omnibus appropriations bill that was released on February 13th. So um, this is expected to go through the House and the Senate and to make it to Trump's desk. Um, the assumption also is that Trump will sign this, but we wanted to talk a little bit about what is already in it. So for one, it seems mostly like the appropriations are equal to the 2018 appropriations, um, which also puts the, them above Trump's like budget requests for them. So. First off is the Clean Water State Revolving Fund, which will receive $1.7 billion. So this was equal to the 2018 uh, valuation, but is also $300 million above President Trump's request. Um, Of that money, 10% are to be for green infrastructure, water, and energy improvements, and other environmental innovations. Um, The next one is the Safe Drinking Water SRF, which will receive $1.2 billion, which again is also equal to the 2018 figures. Um, Five million also will be provided for water quality research grants. Um, This includes the Clean Clean Watersheds Needs Survey, which will receive $500,000 for the EPA to carry out the survey. Um, and then the last of it is actually WIFIA grants. Um, so this is a $68 million appropriation. Um, this is $5 million more than the 2018 appropriation, and it is $48 million above Trump's budget request. But it does direct the EPA to prioritize funding specifically to address lead and emerging contaminants, including PFOA and PFOS. So, um, we did have news on that this week, too, because the EPA talked about some, some plans with that. Yeah, so the EPA, um, we're recording this on the 15th, so yesterday, Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's <laughs> Day, everyone. <laughs> Boy, um, Happy Valentine's Day, which is the day before Valentine's Day. There you Day. go. Um, but, so yesterday, um, the EPA released their PFAS action plan. Um, and I believe there were 25 points on it, um, basically how they plan to address this emerging contaminant. The plan did not list any sort of limits or regulations yet, but they say that they're coming by the end of the year. Um, and if you're not familiar with PFAS, it's kind of, it's, it's an emerging contaminant and it comes primarily from manufacturing operations, manufacturing things like Teflon, um, waterproof and nonstick coatings, and firefighting foam. Um, and it's it has been polluting the groundwater, and it's, I don't know, the last couple of years, it just seems to have been making an appearance. So um, it's good that the EPA has um, issued this action plan, like I said. But um, so some of the things they're addressing are, um, like I said, the limits that they're hoping to implement by the end of the year. 
Oh, I was going to ask if there's like a regional aspect to this, because I believe at one time there was a lot of concern specifically in the Northeast. Yeah, I like New Jersey, um, I believe, has like a, they have their own mm-hmm. kind of limits. State by state, um, I think it's kind of been up to the states to set their yeah. own limits. Um, but yeah, New Jersey um, specifically has been one, but, and also California Oh, okay. Um, we actually, in our regional updates from our regional associations, California said that they um, set a, what's it called, a notification level of mm-hmm. 14 parts per trillion for PFOA and 13 parts per trillion for PFOS. And for reference, the EPA health advisory level is 70 parts per trillion for both. So. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. non-enforceable, but yeah, it is kind of a regional thing because it depends where these manufacturing operations yeah. are located. So. Okay. Yeah, because I remember initial reports often were in like New York, New Jersey area. Yeah. Um, so like it sounds like industrial places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I was um, just I was just curious if that yeah. has grown has spread to people are noticing it elsewhere too. Yeah, I don't think it's like just it doesn't really kind of pop up randomly. It's definitely a result of industrial mm-hmm. things. Um, and so cleanup is part of this action plan as well, um, trying to get these facilities to kind of clean up with, it, with the mess that they've made. Mm-hmm. Um, monitoring, uh, research, things like that, just to kind of keep an eye on it. Um, and then enforcement, they are the communities that already have these regulations in place, the EPA said EPA seeks to support communities that have PFAS releases by using federal enforcement authorities where appropriate. So, again, it's nice that they're taking action. Um, WQA, the Water Quality Association, has been really active in lobbying the government for to take action on this contaminant, and they specifically um, have been promoting that you know the traditional treatment technologies that we have in plants and whatnot are not. Cap- or they're not equipped, the plants aren't equipped to deal with this spe- specific contaminant, but mm-hmm. point of use and point of entry um, products in people's homes can remove it. So they've been really advocating for that. Mm-hmm. And in part of, part of this action plan, the EPA said they encourage well owners to get their water tested and inc- mm-hmm. also encourage them to install these, um, these products as kind of a temporary, I mean, temporary or permanent, but for now, at least until the the municipalities and whatnot can mm-hmm. catch up to the contaminant. So it's good to see them taking a step in this direction and I look forward to Finally. seeing what they yeah. Mm-hmm. Look forward to seeing what they're they come up with for their limits and yeah, yeah. regulations. Well yeah, and well, wells are just they're much more pervasive than I think a lot of people mm-hmm. think and they always get disproportionately affected by these kinds of things more yeah. so than a municipality would. So Yeah. I have been trying to convince my parents to get their well tested for years. Mm-hmm. Same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. So if you have any pointers on how to convince <laughs> your parents to get their well tested <laughs> yep. to protect them from uh, PFOS, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, in, like, we, they, prob- they won't know what's going on with the groundwater there nope. until it gets tested, yeah. too. So, mm-hmm. like, how do, you don't know what's in it until you get yeah. someone specialized. We have some a good... Uh, RO system, but it, mm-hmm. we need to get it tested. Yeah, my mom just moved somewhere with a well, and you can the the water clearly has like a smell to it, and mm-hmm. she's like, "Oh, somebody just came and changed the salt," and I was like, "Can 
<laughs> so you need a professional to tell you um, what is happening. This is here. my job. <laughs> I can tell you the right a- action to take. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, um, in other water news, um, if you've been following the podcast, you'll notice that we've been following Cape Town as part of our day zero coverage and covering other water scarce regions. Um, and there's been some recent news about. Um, about Cape Town, they proposed a new strategy to increase um, their water resiliency and avoid drought or avoid um, water shortages if a drought occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, our associate editor, Lauren Esses, wrote a great um, news roundup about it on our website, so be sure to check eStormWater.com for more info. But um, I was looking at their draft for their water strategy, and it's pretty interesting. They open with five commitments uh, to this strategy. The first one is safe access to water and sanitation, which is always important. And the second one is wise use, which is interesting because they've been relying on that a lot ever since oh, yeah. Day Zero happened, was just relying on making sure residents are using the water resources wisely. So that's pretty interesting. Um, followed by sufficient, reliable water from diverse sources. Number four, shared benefits from regional water resources. And five, a water-sensitive city. So they're still going to rely pretty heavily on their um, dams, their Mm rain-fed dams. But it does involve some um, desalination and... like I said, relying on the, the residents and diversifying their water resources. One way is um, rainwater harvesting, which I've mm-hmm. written about before, but that only goes so far because it's hard to ha- harvest rainwater in a drought, mm-hmm. and it's not a great long-term solution. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's pretty interesting that there's some movement on this to protect their water, and it's something that we'll keep an eye on and see if they they continue mm-hmm. to do that if, if any other areas come up with different strategies like this as well when they face the the threat of running out of water yeah well and um the desalination part was definitely a big factor last year because mm-hmm. i mean there were several desalination plants that were in construction right. Right. they just weren't ready yet it takes time um so i think that that having those up and running like even if that, that that's the other thing to to think um is uh so with these desalination plants a lot of times they don't run, they don't run all the time like and sometimes you're they're investing a lot of money it's like expensive. tons and tons it's of money expensive. into one of these plants that only gets used once every however so often that you run into a drought of this magnitude yes. that you actually need it but like in the event that you need it you want it right mm-hmm. um so so they had like yeah i think that there were like three specific plants that were all in the middle of construction or design phase at, at at the time of day zero last year, um, and they had some timely rain that kind of helped them out. But um, hopefully, that's I, I haven't actually looked into what the status of those construction mm-hmm. of the construction is. Mm-hmm. But I have seen that their um, their reservoirs have yeah. bumped up considerably mm-hmm. from last year. Mm-hmm. Nowhere close yeah. to the the dire need that they needed. So, and that the what what was it called? Wise use. Oh, yes. That's, mm-hmm. that's yes. interesting, too, because, I mean, I, I saw a lot of that, too, when I was yeah. covering it for WQP. Like, the, I mean, like you said, it is hard to harvest rainwater in a drought, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, the way people use their swimming pools and their, mm-hmm. like, gray water recycling systems inside their homes. So people, I mean, 
uh, granted they got a snapshot of it. I don't know how widespread of stuff course. like that was, but it seemed like people were really kind of embracing these more innovative methods. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the dealers I spoke to have said that their business had for these types of products had definitely gone up. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what else they come up with. Well, one aspect to point out is, like I said, it relies a lot on the residents, like mm-hmm. you said, with this mm-hmm. wise use. And, um, and agricultural and industrial users, too. Yes, I was going to say that that's the other big component of that. Mm-hmm. And then a news article from News 24, which is a Cape Town, a local um, news outlet, said that they're going to be... Um, incorporating new incentives in addition to regulations so i think we've seen time and again that that's generally a pretty successful way Mm -hmm. to get people on board is to incentive Mm -hmm. incentivize it so i guess we'll stay tuned and see what those look like yeah yeah in any case it's it's interesting stuff and we'll be continuing to cover stuff that falls into this realm um that we've We've kind of adopted that day zero name to mean everything that includes water scarcity. So yeah. we'll be covering a lot of that throughout this year too. So, yeah. so stay tuned for any for some some stuff on that throughout 2019. Okay. So for our interview this episode, uh, we have Scott Shipley. He's a three-time Olympian and five-time world champion paddler. Um, and he is also the founder and president of a hydro engineering firm called S2O Design. Um, They specialize in river engineering, whitewater park design, and design build of community-focused rivers and parks. Um, So it's very much a recreational side of things, which is certainly a part of the one water because, I mean, water is not used only for, you know, sustaining life, but also is used for fun. And people, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a big economic incentive to have um, good water in your area, even just for recreation. So um, he has a lot of experience with computer monitoring, or sorry, computer modeling and real life hydraulic modeling. Um, And then he's also worked with major dam projects to engineer fish and boat bypasses, um, and also has created some self-contained pump uh, driven whitewater parks. So here's our interview with Scott Chipley. So we're here with Scott Shipley. He is a three-time Olympian and five-time world champion paddler, um, and he's also the founder and president of a hydro engineering firm, S2O Design. So he specializes in river engineering, whitewater park design, design build of community-focused uh, river parks as well. And we wanted to talk to him a little bit about how he approaches those when it comes to the water aspect of it. Um, so, I mean, I guess first things first, Scott, why don't we just kind of talk a little bit more about your background and how you transitioned from whitewater sports to hydroengineering. Going to school for engineering in Atlanta, I, I went to the Olympics in 96 and just stayed and, um, and sort of that led right into um, uh, a, a job offer that I got that was related to river engineering and doing whitewater parks out in Boulder, Colorado. And so I came out and worked for that company for a number of years um, and just kind of decided that I wanted I had a different way of doing things than that company did and a different understanding of how these whitewater parks were used and who they were used by, what they were designed for. And so um started my own company just to start to to, to create that extra special um, 
uh, ingredient that I think goes into whitewater parks that um, that has sort of redefined how they're how they're designed and built now. Um, and so, can you tell us a little bit about these self-contained whitewater parks, um, and also specifically, how do you implement water reuse into those? So we do a couple kinds of whitewater parks, and the one is just what you'd expect. We go into a natural river, and we um, we uh, we design wave features and eddies and chutes and drops um, around what's available in that community that that wants the whitewater park. And sometimes that's a very big water feature, and sometimes it's a very small water feature, depending on the the, the body of water that's near um, or the drainage that's near the town that hires us. With a pump park, we actually are, are coming in and creating a whole river system all um, into itself. And so we build uh, a lake at the bottom of the, what will be the bottom of the of the uh, feature. And then we put in a pump station. Usually it's about $3 million in pumps. And so it's a huge pump station. It, it will pump enough water to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool in 18 seconds. Um, and so... It's a lot of water that goes up um, about 20 to 25 feet. And then we design a natural river system. And people think about you know, water slide parks or um, spray features, things like that. We actually create a, a full-size river channel that you can rest on that flows naturally. There's no jets or sprinklers or pirate ships or theming. Um, we, create, um, we create a real natural river um, that flows in a con contained channel that we build um, that goes over drops and around obstacles and creates whitewater sort of top to bottom, um, sometimes across multiple channels. That's, that is insane, <laughs> how much water that pumps at a given moment. Um, what's kind of the energy cost behind that then, and, and how do you overcome or try and improve energy efficiency for these types of projects? What's interesting, um, you know, the pumping cost on these things is, is a lot of money. It's about $100,000 a month for our largest parks and about about half a million, or sorry, about um, about half that. So um, about $50,000 a month for a single channel, for a single whitewater channel, whitewater park um, during the active season. And that's, that means that they're flowing it, you know, um, from the very earliest part of the morning until past dark. There's usually lights involved. Um, and they're and they're 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 running that whole entire time. Um, the good thing about them, and some of the things that make it much more efficient, are if there's not people there, we don't run the river. It just it just the pumps are turned off, and all that water sits in the bottom pond. Um, we also design them to be much more efficient than natural rivers. And so, if you um, look at the steepness of a World Cup course um, for whitewater slalom, for example. In nature, it's about two to two and a half times steeper than what we build for a World Cup course um, in this confined environment. But it has the same amount of power and the same amount of velocity and the same challenge that, that a natural river course would have. And the reason why we can do it with half that slope is that we, we're very efficient. We use a very smooth channel. The obstacles are designed to not use up too much energy as the water flows through the course. And so we're able to keep that water moving and very powerful in a different way than other rivers. And so, so they're very efficient in that way. Excellent. So when, you, when you're building the ones that are actually part of a, a river system that already exists, um, how are you accounting for water quality with the modifications that you're making? Um, what, what kind of impact do you know you're making and how do you um, like design around that kind of an impact? You know, the, the systems are treated in much the same way that a swimming pool would be treated. It's not 
quite to that standard. Um, and as, as we work more and more in what we call these large um, large recreational water bodies with, with low bathing loads, you know, compared to a swimming pool, there's a lot more water per person than what you see in, um, in a swimming pool. Um, our treatment levels are different, but we still have uh, some amount of chlorine in there and ozone, as well as a filtration system that keeps it clean. The um, the water is uh, <clears throat> the water is turned over about once every 12 hours to 24 hours. That full body of water, and so we're able to um, to sort of make sure that it's clean that way. And we actually fill it from the tap, and so it's not something where we're um, we're using river water or lake water in any way at all. It's it's completely uh, tap water at the start, and then we keep it we keep it clean throughout its life. Um, so, are there any other aside from water quality? But are there any other considerations that you make um, regarding the the local water sources or the environment when you're designing these products? I'm sorry, projects. You know, one one of the big ones that we and, and I think our biggest environmental impact is, in many ways, we bring the mountain to Muhammad, um, in the sense that we um, we bring outdoor recreation right into downtown areas with these with these parks and these projects, um, and so people who would never get into the outdoors and who would never live an outdoor lifestyle or become an outdoor steward um, are all of a sudden exposed to um, outdoor lifestyles right where they live, and we. We consider these to be outdoor adventure centers more than whitewater parks in the sense that there's also trail running and mountain biking and climbing and um, outdoor yoga. And, you know, there's there's somewhere between 15 and 25 different outdoor activities that they can take part in. And so we take people who, for example, in Charlotte, who were bankers and NASCAR fans, right, by definition from Charlotte, and we put them into this environment where they become outdoors people. And they're, they're people now who are hiking the Appalachian Trail, who would never have hiked it. Um, there are people who are kayaking the rivers of the southeast and really around the world who would never have been kayakers. And um, and so um, so I think by by doing that and by by shortening that drive time and by creating this culture that recognizes the value of nature in a way that they would never have been exposed to, that's that's one of our biggest impacts. Awesome. And so. Um... I mean, this sounds like a lot of recreational purposes are involved in this. Are there benefits beyond the recreational aspect that you guys look at when you're trying to determine where you're going to build the next one or um, anything like that? Are there ecological impacts, environmental benefits? What what kinds of things are you looking at from that perspective as well? You know, where you really start to see a lot of the environmental impacts um, that can be beneficial are the in-stream whitewater parks. the in-stream whitewater parks are often built at an existing dam. We're looking for a place that has flow and drop. And so when we build an in-stream whitewater park at, for example, a 12-foot high dam, um, and we turn that into, instead of 12 feet falling over, you know, two feet of upstream, downstream distance, um, we extend that drop over 1,000 feet. Now, all of a sudden, we've created a whitewater park where there's fish passage that hasn't been there in, in many times for for up to 100 years, right? And um, and we start to connect a riparian zone in a way that that has a um, that, that's passable by the species that live in that very very valuable species that live in that that riparian zone. Um, we're aerating that water. We're getting rid of the pools um, that are formed by those lakes, which in many places, not so much in Colorado, those lakes can be um, 
the, the cause of um, higher temperatures in the in the riverbed and algae blooms and things like that. And so, so those are um, those are clear kind of win-win situations when we're working in a natural river. Um, and you mentioned dams a little bit. Um, can you talk a little bit about your work on um, dam projects and how they are um, improving the, the connectivity of rivers? You know, there's a million, and I'm exaggerating there, but there's literally tens of thousands of low-head dams um, around the world that, that were created with um, very little foresight. You know, sometime around the Industrial Revolution, somebody threw up a dam so that they could turn the wheel on a mill. And uh, <clears throat> at that point in time, very little consideration was given to fish passage or impacts to the environment or flooding or any of these things. And for a lot of those towns, they're coming back now and they're saying, um, hey, we still need that dam because it does X, Y, or Z. It's drinking water or it holds up um, water for our lakes or, 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 or. But, um, but we recognize that we've created this barrier and what can we do with it? And so um, the ability to come back and create a channel around that dam or create um, a series of cataracts below that dam in a way that allows for for that connectivity can be a win-win and it, for, for towns that have lost that you know the economic stimulus of um of having industry a lot, of, a lot of that's left those communities at this point in time um having the the tourism come back in as a replacement can be a real benefit as well awesome and i it looks like from um some of your projects have used kind of computer modeling and um, real-life hydraulic modeling. Can you talk a little bit about what goes into that, how you guys are using that type of technology to improve the projects that you're doing? Sure. You know, and at the end of the day, the the um, every project is unique. And so people are coming to us and saying, we have these goals, you know, X, Y, and Z. And um, how, do we, how do we make that happen? And Often those goals are recreational goals, right? How do we how do we have this kind of kayaking or this kind of a beach feature in our in our town or city? Um, but within that, we have to make sure that that we're not raising that floodplain, and that and that's sort of by FEMA standards, right? You're not allowed to go in and raise that floodplain in these towns where you know where you might, on the one hand, be creating recreation, but then flooding people out of their homes on the other hand, and so. So a lot of the basic models that we use are just to establish that, yeah, we created this thing and intuitively we knew because it was downstream of the dam that we wouldn't cause um, additional flooding to a town. Um, but those computer modeling um, tools are letting us do that, you know. And so that's that's where we're using what's called HECRAS, which is an Army Corps of Engineers software. And, and, and the purpose of that is to get a permit to be allowed to build it. But then when you start to say, and we'd like to make sure there's a path, a pathway up for fish, um, or we'd like to make sure that wave looks a certain way, or um, or we have a very specific species that only crawls up along, like a lamprey that crawls up along the bottom of the river. Then we start to look at two-dimensional modeling or um, three-dimensional computational fluid dynamic modeling that allows us to look at um, pathways for those fish or those species to to migrate up and down and also then allow us to let the client look at what the actual wave will look like and how that water will flow through their community. And so, um, so we sort of pride ourselves on being in that cutting edge of, of technology where we can, we can use those tools that are literally being invented in, in the time space that we're using them. So very exciting. Yeah, that, that's actually just really cool that you can use this technology to really see the holistic 
effect of everything and take into account all the things that even the community is really uh, interested in taking into account. Absolutely, yeah. And, and uh, you know, as, as we learn more and more about how these projects work, that science allows us to tailor, you know, to create goals that we can, we can then come back and say, all right, we need, we need, you know, two feet per second along the riverbed, and how are we going to make that work um, and, and understand that in this little corner or pocket that was designed that, that that species happens to use for that kind of passage. And so, so yeah, it's pretty exciting that we can, we can tailor it that closely now. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Scott. We really do appreciate you taking the time with us today. And um, this is such an interesting side of the water aspect. Um, normally, we're talking much more on the treatment side than we are anything. So hearing a little bit about how um, you're going about recreational use and how, like I said, how holistically you're looking at things and making sure that you're making um, making impacts that are beneficial and not negative is just really interesting and really, really cool to hear. You know, I'll tell you one more thing if you guys have a second. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. I'll tell you one of the more exciting things with regard to water usage that Colorado does that you don't see in a lot of places are recreational in-channel diversion. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the acronym is RICDs, but it's a legal method by which we can protect the flows in the river. Um, and it, it basically uses the same water rights um, standard that a farm or a developer might use to, to allocate water. Um, but we get that water right to protect the water from, you know, so water rights in Colorado, especially there's seniority according to the date that you file your water right. Um, and so we're able to go into some of these communities like Durango where we did this and say um, this recreational and channel diversion or, the, or this, this whitewater park essentially has a recreational benefit to the town that's worth a certain amount of dollars. And because of that, we want to protect it from people who might take that water for other uses, like like a new development or a farm or something like that. And um, it's been this really exciting, very um, very powerful way to protect flows in rivers um, for for the rest of time. And so um, so that's something that whitewater parks are able to do now for these communities that you that you that you wouldn't expect. Great. That, yeah. That that actually is pretty pretty interesting. So. Well, yeah, thanks again for uh, for speaking with us today. We really do appreciate your time and taking the time to even talk to us. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thanks for... episode. Thanks again for tuning in. Um, so before we go, we want to give a little more housekeeping, as always. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere else. Um, please rate us. Please subscribe to us. And if you have any comments or concerns or you're interested in communicating with us or talking to us about basically anything that we've talked about or if you have an idea of what you'd like us to talk about, drop us a line at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com. And also be sure to join our Facebook group. Um, you can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash talkingunderwater. Um, please join and... <laughs> meet each other talk to us we're all in it um it's a new group so you can um get in on the ground, yeah, floor. Get on the ground floor become an influencer tell your friends mm -hmm. um so yeah we'll be posting some photos and some fun stuff in there any links yeah. um to anything we talk about we can also post mm -hmm. in there um 
Yeah. Also want to do a quick plug. Um, registration is open for the Stormwater Solutions Conference and Exhibition this November outside of Chicago. So be sure to get that early word pricing. Last year's event was awesome. So we want to see you again this year. For sure. Yeah. Till next okay. time. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.